Do you ever catch yourself standing in the shopping mall not knowing what Christmas gift to get your loved ones? No need to worry this year. Find a range of gifting options for every budget in the new Australian Geographic Christmas Gift Guide, including telescopes, games and educational toys. Get your Christmas shopping right this year and shop at QBD Books or online at australiangeographic.com forward slash catalogue. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast from Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Nick Gleeson. Nick is a truly adventurous spirit. He's climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, climbed above Everest Base Camp. He's run the New York Marathon three times. He's carried the Olympic torch. He's represented his state of Victoria in cricket. And the list goes on and on and on. But what makes Nick truly remarkable is that he's been totally blind since the age of seven. So I'm really excited to be sitting down with Nick Gleeson on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia, Nick Gleeson. Thank you very much, Chrissy. It's a a pleasure to be here. And welcome to Unity. Unity is your seeing eye dog. So this is our first ever Australian Geographic dog cast. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And Unity is a beautiful golden retriever dog who's sitting with us here in the Australian Geographic stationery cupboard. (laughs) And um, so we're all here together this morning and it's just great to see you, Nick. Um, You've led an extraordinary life. There's just never really been a dull moment. Uh, where where do you, where does it come from? Where do you get this drive, this zest for life that would leave most people standing? Do you know, I think it may stem way back to my childhood, and I I've thought about this, especially as I've got older. Where where do I get the motivation to want to find the next thing to do in life? And I keep going back to when I became blind at the very young age, and the encouragement that was shown to me by my parents and and the teachers at that time, I think they were the, the real key people that that got me motivated to to be, believe that I could do what I really wanted to do in life and to give it a go. So I think that's where it started from. Now, those people that you spoke about before, both your teachers and your parents, tell us a little bit, take us back actually to that time when you lost your sight or, or even to your childhood down in Victoria. Tell us actually how that happened because that, look, you, you did see up until the age of seven, but then you lost your sight in an accident. Yeah, I, I remember very clearly that, that, that uh, those particular days and it, it, it all started on a Thursday, late Thursday afternoon and I was with my mother in a supermarket and we lived in Broad Meadows, just a, 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 a suburb in Melbourne, a very much working class suburb. And uh, we were about to leave the supermarket and I was either walking or running and I stood on the mat that triggered the electronic door and it was a swinging door rather than sliding. And it hit me on the side of the head and caused a bit of blood uh, and a few tears but they, my mum and the shop assistant, they cleaned it up and uh, we went home and we thought nothing more of it. But then at 
about 1pm on the Sunday afternoon, suddenly I could only see half of everything. And my parents uh, drove me into the hospital, into the eye hospital. And I recall vividly sitting in the, in the car looking out the window and wondering why the buildings were getting blurred and further away. And I looked up into my mother's face and <clears throat> that would be the last image I would ever see. Um, and I remember she hugged me and we arrived at the hospital, but I couldn't see, they operated, but nothing could be done. So I started on my pathway of being blind. So that was my first, I suppose, the beginning of a new way of seeing and adjusting to a new situation. And that's what I often say to people is, that is, in life, we are often faced with adjustments, things that we don't particularly like, but we don't have much control over. And, and I always say to people, no, it's very wise to feel the loss. Sometimes you have to experience the grief of the loss and then but be very much aware of you have to move on at some point in time. And your mother, your parents um, had obviously laid a lot of the groundwork for the way in which you were going to deal with this great kind of tragedy that, that affected your life from the age of seven onwards. Tell us a little bit about your mum and dad. Yeah, again, they were just very ordinary people. I say that in the nicest way, but they had no counselling when it came to what would help me uh, as, as a young boy who was blind. So they did it very naturally. And my dad, he, he was a builder's labourer, and my mum had quite a lot of health issues. But she was very special in that she was very proud of her family she was very house proud, so her home was, she kept very clean and orderly and was in many ways a, a, a tremendous role model. My dad on the other side was wonderful, very loving and caring, but he did have some, I suppose, generational, I think generational challenges as far as uh, his work often meant that the men went for beer after work at times he had alcohol issues. He was never, there was never any violence in our family at all. Uh, but how, however, alcohol was a bit of a challenge for him at times. And when I look back too, I, I can understand it. He, 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 I think a lot of people would have resorted to alcohol looking at what he had gone through. And, but he, he continued to be a loving, caring person. And to his credit, in the last eight years of his life, he gave away alcohol totally, yeah. which was a great thing. Mm. But as far as assisting me, my dad was very creative. Say, for instance, um, I loved AFL and still do, and I, and I love sport. But my dad would put bells inside a football. So I realised then, yes, I can't see but I can still play football in the backyard with my dad and my brothers and, and we'd kick the ball around. I could still take you know, the flukish mark. So <laughs> somehow the ball would just by, by luck would fall in my arms. But that special moment was, that was my moment. Mm. And, uh, and I often recall and share the story of my dad taking myself and my older brother down to Cardinia Park, their home ground for Geelong AFL team. 
and arriving there as a, as a young boy of eight by then and what it was like and some people say well why would a totally blind person go to a football game and the, and the reason is that we arrived there and I could smell the meat pies and sauce mm. I could hear the young boys with the the football record the little booklet they'd be selling and they'd be calling out I could hear people walking and giving the come on Geelong and the whole atmosphere and the jam donuts and sugar. I could smell that. <laughs> and just finding our seats and sitting there with my little transistor listening to the game. And I remember on that particular day at half time my dad somehow talking our way into the football of the players' room and meeting the champion Geelong football players of the of that period and one of the players picked me up above his head and smelling the deep heat that they were rubbing into their bodies at that time and hearing the coach's message to them and some of the some of the words he was saying were probably not for eight year old ears to hear but it didn't matter <laughs> it didn't matter and i remember at, going back in outside into our seats and Geelong winning the game going and going home with that seed of belief that I could be a champion, I could do the things. I just met the people who motivated me to get on with my life. How wonderful. What, what a great sort of story. And that's like within about a year or so of you losing your sight, you're already developing all these other senses where you experience the world through those the smells and the sounds and, and, and things. And I know that um, you know, this is the way in which you were then able to sort of start participating in sport, like as you t talked about, there's special equipment involved. But there's also just that way in which you, you know, learn to sort of have the, the courage, I suppose, to put one foot in front of the other when you can't see. And that really that sounds like your father had a huge role in that, in encouraging you to do that. But also your large family, you're one of seven. So I imagine it's a big knockabout family with lots of people around all the time that probably, you know, you just sort of had to get on with it. In many ways it was, however... My, my family, like a lot of other families, uh, my mother, her first husband left her and and uh, they had had three children, um, of which um, one bro half-brother I, I didn't see until I was 21, and uh, another a sister, she'd passed away due to cot death, um, and then another brother of mine, died in a tragic uh, accident when he was 23. Mm. So there's a lot of a lot of things happening mm. within our family. Yeah. And that's why I often say to people that you can you can go through periods of real uh, challenges and uh, both my parents died by the time I was 21. Um, but my, my, my message is never give up. You know, you always hang in there. And despite the gloom and the doom that often appears at that moment, yeah. you know, there, there is blue sky ahead. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a matter of just getting through the next hour, doing something nice for yourself, trying to get through to the next day or and look for the resources that are around. There's, often there's a, a friend or someone, a counsellor. or All you have to do, in my mind, is just keep pushing forward and meeting those people. 
and and my family were an incredible family and uh, and they did encourage me but they didn't over analyze everything either it just came naturally mm. and I didn't sort of they didn't say sit me down and say Nick you've got to show courage or you've got to put goals in place and I, I just that happened really quite naturally and um, and and with enjoyment and with enjoyment and and with love and that's right with love as well yeah. Now you talked about your teachers, so you went off to boarding school quite early on as well, um, and that was a, a a blind boarding a boarding school for the blind. At what age did you go off and do that? Straight away. Yeah. Right. Straight after I lose my sight, mm. I went to St Paul's School for the Blind in Kew, mm. and that was a very good school, and it was quite unique in the sense that the they had a, a boys house and a girl's house and and they were old um victorian houses so dating back to probably built in like the 1860s and 70s and even our the school itself where we had our our, our lessons that that was an old building so it had that homely feeling to it and the staff were very good overall they were just amazing people that um, that showed care but discipline as well, and and I remember the matron of the of the school, and this probably would not happen these days, but she said to my parents, she said, your son will be treated like any other member of a family, and if he comes home and says he's got a smack for being naughty, <laughs> believe him. <laughs> and um, were you ever naughty at school, Nick? I, I, I don't think I got a smack, but it, it was a good heads-up straight away. <laughs> yeah. You knew where you stood anyway. I knew where I stood. Yeah. And, and she was amazing. And, you know, in the morning she would say, boys, everyone outside before breakfast. Don't just sit down. And and so she encouraged us to get outside and mm. and and almost she sort of forgot about being blind. Mm. You know, she'd say, go and play ball or go and do this or, you know, and... So it didn't really feel like um, it didn't really feel like a, a, I suppose a, a traditional boarding school in that sense. It felt like an extended family, mm. and and of course we got away as much as we could, and <laughs> and the staff you know, caught us as much as possible as well. Uh, and that's where you started playing footy, is that? Yeah, we we played football there. We put bells and ball. We mm. created teams and competitions. I was very, I was always very competitive. Mm. So I think you know when I look back, I think I probably put some boys to a lot of hell mm. because I was the one bossing them around. Saying, <laughs> yeah, we're going to play ball, and you're on this team, and I'm on this team, and now we're going to do this and do that, and yeah. and and I loved. We played cricket, and and I often share the story of. Um, listening to the uh, England versus Australia Ashes series. And that would, by memory, it was 1972. So I was about 11 years of age. And it was played in England. So it was on throughout the night. So I'd have, I had my transistor under my pillow. And the nurses would come around and check on the boys, make sure they're all sleeping and all doing well. And, and one of the nurses heard my transistor so she confiscated it oh, no. and she said you won't be you won't return this until friday you'll get this back on friday when you go home and i i did pretend to be very devastated but little but little did she know i had a, a backup transistor <laughs> i wasn't going to miss out on listening to the, the test match in england oh 
how wonderful, how wonderful. So you played cricket, you excelled at cricket as well as at footy, but you ended up playing to represent Victoria. Tell us about uh, uh, the, the blind cricket game. How does that work in terms yeah. of taking those catches? And... I love blind cricket. You know. <laughs> Firstly, the, the team is combined of players who are either totally blind like myself um, and oft, often you'd have, say, four who were totally blind and the rest of the team would be made up of those who were legally blind, um, often referred to as vision impaired or have low vision. So they can see, they ordinarily wouldn't use a cane or a dog. Mm -hmm. The ball has bells inside it and you bowl, and I often say, in true Trevor Chapel style, <laughs> underarm, and it's mm. all legal, it's underarm. And the rule is the ball must touch the pitch once before the halfway line and once after. Mm. And when I bat, um, I would have one of my teammates who has low vision or vision impairment, and he would run for me. Right. And the bowler would ask, are you ready? And I'd say yes, and as the ball has been delivered, the bowler would say, play. So you knew the ball was on its way, and then you'd be listening for the bells, mm. and then also your runner would do his best to say straight, off, leg. But I learnt very early in my career, listen to them but don't necessarily believe them. Because <laughs> I remember one of my first innings is he said, leg. So I took a big swing down leg side and boom, bold middle stump. That's like, what happened? Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, it must be in the wind. And I said, yeah, but don't, there's no wind. <laughs> so it's, it's like a, it's a bit of a lesson in life, isn't it? No, mm -hmm. old, we, when it comes to it, we are responsible for our own, uh, our own doing and we can rely on others, but not totally. Mm -hmm. We have to take some responsibility, and that's what I learned in cricket. And it, cricket did teach me a lot about being a good sport, I, I think initially I'd get, I'd get really upset when we lost. And then I realised, you know what, the best thing for me to do is to go and shake the hand of the opposition players. And that helped me to manage the loss and it also motivated me to, next time, we're going to win. So mm. I don't want to go and shake the hands every time. I want to be the one receiving <laughs> the, the victory handshake. <laughs> well, um, and you did go on, and you've, you've played a lot of cricket at a very high level and, and, and undoubtedly a very good team sports player. But you've also been, you, you, you became a runner, uh, a yeah. solo runner, you know, a runner of marathons, oh, but yeah. also a runner of fast races. Yeah. How does I mean, what's the training for, for you in, in running a, a, a fast a sprint? Well, I did my sprinting when I was in my teens, so later teens through to around about the age of 26. And I absolutely loved the 100 sprint. That was my favourite event, mainly because you ran that independently so uh, it was a time trial oh i see so you don't have the other runners lined up next to you you just no. run against the clock and you didn't run with anyone else right so you had no guide mm. all you did was run to your vo your coach's voice so on in an event it would only be myself on the blocks and my coach standing behind the finish line and then the timekeepers and that sense of absolute freedom of and and the thrill I suppose the element of a bit of danger mm. and as a young person often you know we'd throw that 
caution to the wind and literally I, I'd be sprinting um, to her to her voice uh, and that total sense of um, freedom of no restraints even though I'm totally blind I am going maximum speed for 100 meters mm. and I think that's what I loved most about my competitive running and I mean I, I of course I wanted to win but for me it was more around that that sense of um, freedom. Exhilaration. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that was solo running against the clock, and then you started marathon running, and you've ended up running the New York Marathon, which has got tens of thousands of people <laughs> around you. How did you negotiate something like that? Well, what happened was, and, and again, I think it's a bit of a lesson of sometimes we, to achieve your bigger goal, you put little steps in place, and that was I joined a club called the Achilles Running Club, and that was in Sydney, the first one of the first chapters of that worldwide club in Australia. And when I turned up, they said, "Oh, you know, we we do we can enter you in a ten ten kilometre race." And I thought, oh, "What? <laughs> ten kilometres? I'm used to running one, two, four hundreds. That's all." Uh, but no, I started to adapt and I started training for longer distances and I ran the 10K and then they said, we've entered you in the Sydney Half Marathon, which is 21K. And then they came along and said, well, we've got seven airline tickets of which three people who are blind, including yourself, and we're going to New York. <laughs> and we had three fantastic guides as well as a famous former Olympic champion, uh, Lisa Ondiecki. And she was, uh, I know, she'd won the New York Marathon. And so on our first marathon, we were travelling to New, New York. Wow. And, and I'll always remember that standing on the, sta uh, on the start line in, on, in Staten Island with 42 kilometres in front of me. And as you say, tens of thousands of people. And that sense of excitement mixed with fear and doubts and, and uh, determination... And, and running through all the different boroughs of New York and, and a marathon, I, keep, I tell so many people, a marathon is, can be achieved by absolutely anyone. Anyone can do it. It's just a matter of deciding to do it mm -hmm. and then putting the pla uh, steps into place. Mm -hmm. So um, I loved it. And when I finished my first marathon and crossed that finish line, that feeling of achievement was so wonderful and the atmosphere is so fantastic that I had to go back two more times <laughs> and have the same feeling. And then just run up the Empire State Building for just for kicks, hey? Well, that was so funny because it was straight after my first New York Marathon mm -hmm. and I was invited uh, three months later to come back to do an event that's held annually and um, to run up to 1,576 steps. And I often say to people, well, the good news is you can take the lift down. <laughs> but I, I remember that event mainly because of, a, uh, of someone else who participated. And that was a, a man who was interviewed straight after he finished. And he was an 80-year-old man. Yes. And his words went something like, I have just finished my 20th annual medical checkup. And thank you for the opportunity to participate again. And I thought, what a fantastic yeah. advertisement for people who are older now in our community. 
great it's a great idea that uh, and what when you're running up are you are you just on your own do you have a person that's like next to you that you that hold on to or do you no no I, I ran by myself I had a, a a person who followed me and he would yell out things like um person coming up and I could usually hear their footsteps anyhow and it was an interesting event in that they made me start exactly last, about 30 seconds after everyone else had gone. Mm. But in those days, I was extremely fit. So I ended up passing about 100 people <laughs> by the time we got to the top, and which we didn't really factor into it because we thought I would be that far behind. That wouldn't be an issue. Mm -hmm. But the people were fantastic, and I would hear them, and then what would happen, my guide would call out, a blind runner coming up, and then I would lightly touched them on the back mm -hmm. and then they would either stop or or I would manoeuvre my way around them and then find the rail again and then my challenge was to meet the next person. So it became a bit of a game for me, like, mm -hmm. where's the next one? We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Obviously, a very fit and, and a finely tuned yeah. athlete is what you you became. Yeah. And then at some stage, you sort of started exploring the idea of a of true adventure and sort of leaving these kind of sporting areas and taking all of that determination and, and applying it to adventures in the great outdoors. And I first met you back in 2002 when you were our Spirit of Adventure Award winner that year for climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. That's right. And, um, and we haven't really caught up with, with each other much in the intervening years, but you've had some incredible adventures in that time and um, uh, including in very, very recent times. So first of all, tell us about Kilimanjaro. That was an, a, a, an organisation known as Blind Ambition that you did. That's I think right. you set that organisation up. So tell us, take us right back to then when you were just a young man <laughs> and I was just a young woman <laughs> and it was quite a long time ago. That was, right. was that your first mountain the first mountain that you attempted to climb yeah that's right and again I think it when I look back <clears throat> that goal I believe stemmed right back to my childhood before I lost my sight watching a black and white television seeing Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenjing Norgay and almost like subconsciously that seed was planted and then resurfaced all those years ago and and it took again. It took a fair bit of planning because I wanted I wanted to feel what high altitude felt like, but I had no idea how to go about doing it. So it took many phone calls and different um, uh, discussions and conversations with lots of people before I found a person called Lucas Trahi who lives in the in the Blue Mountains, and Lucas would change my life because he understood and sat down with me and said, this is what we could do. He said, what are your goals? What do you actually want to, to experience? 
And I said, well, you know, I, I want to reach, I want to reach, hopefully, as a summit, but that's not my primary goal. I want to, but I do want to feel what it's like when people struggle in high altitude, what it's like to be breathless and to, to really have to push through a bit of, and a bit of pain and maybe a bit of, and struggle. And, but I'm not an experienced climber as such. He said, well, I think Kilimanjaro would be the perfect mountain. And then he said, well, who do you want to climb with? And I said, well, I'd, I'd love to have some close friends, but I don't, I don't want it to be too big a group because I want it to remain intimate. I want it to be, remain something that we can share as one. And he said, well, I think five would be a good number. And we, we discussed about the environment because I wanted to be able to understand what the vegetation was like and, and the actual mountain itself, not just walk past it all. Because when you're blind, you don't see it. Mm. So you want it described. You want to be able to stop and feel the leaves. You want to feel the soil, feel the wind, the sun, and all the, all the other aspects of the experience. And that's what Lucas ensured happened. Mm. And that's what we formed Blind Ambition One. And um, I had a great friend, Ellis Jenks and Roseanne Green and Charlie McConnell, who is also blind, along with Lucas. And the five of us flew to Tanzania. And we had, we had done a lot of preparation back here in Australia, uh, in um, Mount Kosciuszko in, in winter. Um, and we did a lot of, uh, we did continue to do running, so we made sure our fitness levels were good. But we also were very much across what we wanted to get out of it. Now, you, you mentioned there um, Sir Edmund Hillary. Mm. Now, I know that he's a great inspiration for you. So tell us about Sir Edmund, because you did actually end up meeting him. I did. And it was such a wonderful moment. And a bit of a story to it, because uh, back in 2006, I had a plan to travel to South America to uh, trek up uh, Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America. And I was with a friend and we were training out of Auckland, but unfortunately the sponsorship fell through due to the untimely and sad death of Susan Fear and, and a wonderful Australian climber. Yes, we, we knew Sue very well, did very you? much yeah. missed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it did affect our climb in the sense that... Um, the sponsorship, sponsorship, they got cold feet and backed out. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm philosophical about that in the sense that, well, it wasn't meant to happen and who knows, if we had gone, it may, something else could have happened. But what it meant on that trip to New Zealand where we were training in the middle of winter out west of Auckland, it gave me that opportunity to ring Sir Edmund Hillary. And I thought, no, you've probably got to put the phone down. <laughs> But he said, Nick, come and visit me in my home. Oh, and so wonderful. myself and my friend, we went to his home and we sat in his sunroom with his wife, June, and I recall sitting down and he put his arm around my shoulders and when I went to ask him a question, he said, Nick, wait. He said, I'm 80, I think it was 84, 85, whatever he said. But he said, I've, I've answered questions all my life. I don't want to talk about my life. I want to hear about yours. Mm. And we sat for over an hour uh, chatting away over a pot of tea and a packet of Tim Tams. <laughs> and it was just one of those 
super moments and people often say, well, why is he your hero? And I said, well, it wasn't so much that he was the first person along with Tenzing Norgay to summit Mount Everest. It was more that he went back and he, he was very much part of the Nepalese um, people and he built schools and he built, he built the, the little the, the clinic that still exists and the runway that people land these days on the side of the mountain. And I also mentioned that, and a lot of people don't know, that his first wife and daughter were killed in a plane crash. Mm. And he explained to me that after that terrible accident, he, um, he was very much affected, obviously, by that. And alcohol became part of his life for several years and it became quite a problem. And he realised he had to do something about it. And what they told me was that he was a human being. He wasn't a hero in the sense that everything was perfect, but he, he made mistakes, but he tried his best to, to rectify them and to become a, a person that could make a difference. And that's what I loved about Sir Edmund Hillary and his wife June, who was a very supportive person of him. And he was very, he had great values. Um, he was very opinionated, and you know, some people may have disagreed with him on certain things, but I think I loved how he had an opinion and he stuck by it. Yeah, and I think the wonderful thing about him is that uh, summiting Everest back in 1953 was really just the beginning for him, wasn't it? It was. It wasn't like the, the, the total sum of his achievements. He went on and achieved so many things in so many ways. But as you say, so humble and self-effacing. What a great role model, hey? Oh, he was. <laughs> and I promised him, I said, uh, that I would do my best. I said, I can't, I'm not going to reach the summit. I, I'd love to, but financially, I, it's not going to be happening. And probably from a practical point of view, it's not feasible. But I said, I will definitely go to Mount Everest, which I did uh, about three years later. And what about the altitude? Did you, were you affected by that in a bad way or was it just something you were able to cope with? Kilimanjaro, I, my dream was fulfilled and uh, I did feel an altitude and when I did find it, then it became a bit of a nightmare rather than a dream mm. because I remember on that last day on Kilimanjaro, uh, Charlie, halfway through the morning, had extreme difficulty breathing and moving and to the point where he had to return to Kibo Hut where he would stay the previous night. Um, he just, Lucas made the hard call, but again, this all came into planning. We all agreed that Lucas, who had the experience and knowledge, he would be the one that would take, uh, make it, take and make any assessments. And he said, Charlie, it's over. He said, you're going back. And Charlie, to his credit, did not complain ever, on, not on that day or since. Mm. He went back with his local guide. Um, and then I, I continued on. With a bit of the added pressure of knowing that some people said, not directly to us but to others, that people who are blind shouldn't be doing it, they can't do it, they won't make it. Mm. And it gave me that drive <laughs> to really push on. And it was a bit, uh, it was challenging in particular that last day when you're going through scree, uh, snow, um, and you've got the effects of altitude where you're not breathing so well. I've got a bit of a headache and a shortness of breath mm. um, and Lucas is really working one-on-one -on -one with me on, on this last day 
trying to reach that summit and we were pushing pretty hard to get there. And I, I remember we got there on a, a 2.27 p.m. on the 27th of May. Mm. So, and just standing on the rooftop of Africa. How wonderful. You know, um, was, and Roseanne coming up. And she was the only woman in our little blind ambition group. And, and us men, we, we, I, th- I think we're all on, sitting on rocks, but Roseanne remained standing. And she described, she said, it's absolutely incredible, Nick. The clouds have parted. The sun is shining down onto and into the crater. And the snow is a brilliant blue. And I can see right across the plains of Africa. And those words and her energy... And I could sense she was bouncing up and down, even though, like, I was feeling absolutely <laughs> out of it. <laughs> they just, like, it just sunk into me. It's like, this is what it's all about. I love it. I'm here. And I've, we've made it. And, Nick, just how important is it that people do what, what, what your friend did in, and, and describe the scene to you? Oh, it's, it makes such a difference and... and and what it involves, and it can be a bit of a bit of a challenge, in that it does involve people stopping and just really taking in what's in front of them. And the feedback I get to, and I, and I, I go to lots of art exhibitions. I love art, mm. and, and even the art educators have said to me, Nick, you're really taking us to a different dimension because we've never really had to stop and really look closely at something and put mm. it into words. Mm. And they've all said, without exception, that they've loved that experience of, of looking and putting into words, uh, often being questioned about, they'll tell me, then I say, yeah, but is the person smiling? Or are they holding something? Or tell me about this, tell me about that. Mm. And that's what I, I've loved knowing and feeling that I've maybe extended people's lives as far as stretching them. Yeah. And discovering something about themselves that they may not have known before. Yeah, so they have to, in order to put it into words, they've really got to look again at everything or yeah. really look deeply at any any scene. So whilst they, they help you to sort of visualise the scene, it, it also helps them to kind of appreciate what's in front of them. I think it's a great partnership that you have with people when that happens. Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful and... And usually my visits to art galleries or you know, the experience I had with Roseanne, but these things, they're pretty fleeting in that even an exhibition, the concentration involved is around about an hour to an hour and a quarter, and that's as long as you can really mm. hold that level of high concentration, otherwise you both get so exhausted. But you come out of there and think, oh, that was so fantastic. Now, you've, um, in recent times, a couple of you, let's talk about some of your more recent adventures because, you know, you, you're, you're, you've, done, you've climbed your mountains, but you traversed the Simpson Desert uh, a couple of years ago. And I have to say that the Simpson Desert is one of my favourite places in yeah. the world. Yeah. And when anyone asks me w- w- in the places that I've travelled in this job, what's my favourite, I always say the Simpson Desert at night is usually oh. my answer. So when I read in your book, and we'll talk about your book in a little while, about your uh, traverse of the Simpson Desert and you were describing all of those scenes and those experiences and those sounds, I, I knew exactly what you were talking about. So tell us about how you would you know, tackle something like walking across an Australian yeah. desert. Yeah, well, again, I, I 
I realised Lucas Trahi had been out in the Simpson Desert, so I, I connected up again with Lucas. We made sure that we put in place all the safety aspects because that's important. We just you don't want to just wander off uh, without being properly prepared and having all things covered. So we covered all those things off again properly, and also chatted about what I wanted to experience. So um, this time I said I wanted a smaller group. I wanted it to be as uh, moments of solitude. Uh, and I invited my friend Vina from America that I met when she was on a visiting visa uh, when she was in her early 20s. So we'd met when we were very young and we've remained great friends. So I said, I'm at a stage in my life where I really want my closest friend to be there. So she came along, she flew to Australia. I, I was introduced to Sarah Delaney, a wonderful expert in outdoor activities. Mm -hmm. And we flew to Birdsville. We were driven, I think it was about a seven-hour drive out to Popal's Corner, and there we were dropped off, and we set off, the three of us. Now, before your listeners start to think, mm, well, Nick, you're some sort of hero, I got in really early. I said, you know what, I bar sleeping in the middle. <laughs> I thought, if a, if a big camel comes along, I'm safest in the middle, so I'm not brave, don't, I'm a coward. But that feeling of walking the three of us in such an isolated area where we knew that the chances of coming across anyone else was almost zero. And to be able to, sh to look at things that other people probably would never or are unlikely to see unless you make that effort, to feel the footprints of, say, an emu or a kangaroo or a dingo in the sand, to... to um, pick up the different things that were discovered and people might sort of shun but I remember Sarah saying Nick put your hand flat and then she put a dead scorpion in my hand <laughs> and I could feel it and it's like wow you know I, 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 I loved it I mean I won't have probably that opportunity ever again um, to feel the flowers and to have them described and to taste the berries that Sarah found and and knew that we could safely eat. One of the absolute highlights was discovering the Aboriginal artefacts that that were there. And who knows? It could be a thousand, could be ten thousand, thirty thousand mm -hmm. years ago. To feel them, and of course, we were very strict that we put them back exactly mm -hmm. where they were lying. Um, it was also my opportunity to have some moments of spirituality, to reflect on my life, just sit down and just not have anything interrupting. So I had no phone, no technology. I knew that no, someone was going to call out and say, it's dinner time or can you do this or do that. That was you know, an extreme highlight for me in the Simpson Desert. And did you sleep out under the stars? Oh, we did. With no tents, of course, because mm. we were carrying our own food and water. We just uh, slept on a mat on the ground under the stars, which they described to me. Mm. Um, at least one or two nights we had dingoes howling, mm. and that was wonderful. And one morning I remember waking up and they described how during the night a dingo and its pup had walked 
within metres of our camp, they could see the footprints in the sand. And I thought, wow, you know, how close to nature are we? Mm. And just one of those tremendous moments. Now, last year you, um, uh, you, you decided that you were going to walk across a lake. Um, and you went down to South Australia and did a traverse of Lake Eyre. So how did that come about? Where did that idea come from? Well, I, I, I love the Simpson Desert, but I, I, when I came back, I sensed that I needed more solitude. So I spoke with Lucas and I said, what could I do that would really take me into solitude? So he said, well... You could do a crossing of what they call um, Island Lagoon, which is in South Australia, and he said it's the chances of rain is almost zero. And he travelled out there to just check it all over, which he did so thoroughly with his son, and uh, so appreciative. Now this is a very remote place, and you need a special vehicle. It's um, very challenging. To, to even drive down using your vehicle to get near the, near the lagoon. So we, again, we put everything in place and I would travel with Sarah and a great friend of hers, Monique, and we drove the 1,600 kilometres out to Island Lagoon and we did all the proper preparation and the night before, uh, Sarah was playing guitar and we had the, a fire there burning and we had a beautiful dinner prepared by Monique and Sarah mostly <laughs> and me a little bit and then boom the thunderstorm hit. <gasps> oh wow <laughs> a very rare event no doubt. And it dumped 20 mils onto the <laughs> lake and so Sarah's back in communication with Lucas and we're talking about it and the thing is you just don't know what's, what it's like out there mm. so we delayed it two days but it came to the point, like, no, we're just going to walk down through the Narrows, which is about a kilometre, six kilometres, down to the lagoon where I was planning to cross and see what it's like. And we get down there and Sarah says, you won't believe it, it's dry. It looks dry. So I don't know what it's like beyond here. Mm. And I said, well, no, I'm going to do it. So within an hour, I was all ready to go. And I said goodbye to Sarah and Monique and with with great confidence and adulation, I set my I set off, and I think it was one point eight k's in, I came across water, so, <laughs> so it's ankle deep, and it's like oh my goodness, now this is a bit of a shock to the system, and I had that momentary oh no, don't say this is going to undermine my whole thing, um, and I. We had our two-way radios uh, that I, I connected with Sarah and Monique and I said what was happening. And they said, Nick, just keep going. Just don't be phased by it. And by 5pm, what we will do, uh, using our technology, we will guide you off the lake so that you can find dry sand to sleep on. So so they did that and, and I walked off the lake and they said, you'll find, you'll know when you're off the lake, it'll become dry and you'll find vegetation. So I found a plant or two and I realised, yep, I'm off the lake. And I set up my camp for the first night and um, just rolling my mat out and 
and, and uh, preparing my meal and would discover these wonderful meals by adding some water, you, it would um, set off a, uh, a, um, a, a sequence of things that would, that would heat up the meal. So I had a beautiful hot meal <laughs> just by adding water mm. to, to the contents. And, uh, and there I spent that night. And then the following morning, I then walked back onto the lake. Um, and that would be a very challenging day because the water became deeper at times it got to my knee um, and it meant that, well, I felt I couldn't take my backpack off. So I w actually walked for eight hours with my very heavy backpack and um, there were moments through that day where our tracking device uh, wasn't, well, I wouldn't say it wasn't working, but temporarily it wasn't showing where I was. But again, Monique was very calm and she said, no, I'm not sure where you are, but you know what, you, you just keep heading this direction. I'll pick you up. And several hours later she did. And then we were able to say, okay, you know, you drifted a bit south. We think you should go north, a bit more northerly. And eventually um, at four, about 4.30 p.m. I, I found a dry spot uh, and, and on this amazing island in the middle of the lagoon, and that's where I'd spend my second night mm. on my mat, and I was totally exhausted that night, a, bit, a little bit delirious. I'd, I'd made the mistake of not drinking enough and not eating enough, so that was a bit of a learning curve for me and maybe others in the future. Uh, but again, it was just wonderful, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just total silence and just the air around me and and I'd planned this in advance. I had my phone with me, obviously, obviously have no reception, but I listened to my favourite book, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Huh? And I thought, you know what, I don't think Charles Dickens would ever anticipated the reading of one of his books in such an isolated place in Australia. Mm, I'm sure you were. And I think what, what I probably didn't point out at the beginning of that, that this was a solo trek across this salt lake in South That's Australia. Right. You were actually going to be on your own. You on wouldn't own. have anyone around you, nobody to hold on to or nobody to tell you what was coming up. And a solo it. trek for three I days. I absolutely loved it. And and what I might do, and hopefully you'll be able to hear this, I had my talking compass that I used. Mm. And I'll just, oh, I'm not sure if it's going to pick it up. It's saying northwest. Mm. North, east, northwest. Southeast, east. And that's the device that I used along with a braille compass. Mm. And the combination of those two devices enabled me to have a greater control over what was happening. Mm. And again, like that solo trek was the right thing at the right time in my life at my age. Mm. And did you have, so you had some kind of positioning device on you so that your team could track you at any particular time, but it wasn't working too well all the time? Yeah, they had the tracking device and it wasn't working absolutely all the time, but eventually it did pick up. And I was, I was never at risk. I never felt, mm. no, I was a little bit frustrated, I think, one or, once or twice. Uh, but I knew, too, that the safety mechanism, we had a, another device that uh, 
that I had to update every 24 hours and it was a, a device that would enable people to find me in the event of something mm. going terribly wrong. Um, but I also understood, and Sarah explained to me very clearly, that in the event of something having ter- some terrible health issue, that the chances of getting out of there were quite remote in the sense that you can't drive a vehicle out there. It would literally have to be a helicopter rest- rescue. Mm. And it was important for me to understand that, that to walk, we'd have to walk out of there, mm. basically. It's very remote, that part of the world. And, of course, those lakes just... Is, is, is it part of Lake Eyre or is it it's just another salt lake in that area? It's in that area and mm. we were planning Lake Eyre. The problem we had was that Lucas, when he did his reconnaissance, said Lake Eyre is just too wet. Mm. Even before we got there, there's too much water. Mm. So it's a little bit, not a regret, but it's just one of those things that, no, I... I as much as I wanted to do Lake Eyre, it just wasn't feasible. And, and Nick, do you have a bucket list of things that you want to do? Tell us about some things you'd like to do. I think one of the one of the things I need to do is, and this might sound a bit contrary to what I sh- what might, people might be thinking, and I'm starting to do it pretty well, and that is to realise I am getting older. And that is to be realistic about what is possible and also discovering other things that will add value to my life. And that's why I I wrote my book two years ago and I continue to do lots of writing. And and writing has become a really, such an important part of my life because it's something that I can do hopefully for the next 20 years or, (laughs) or the years I have remaining in my life that I can actually continue to do it. So my bucket list is to continue to find the things that can add value to my life, and that is writing, and I very much love doing that, and I encourage everyone, even if it's never published, publication is not that relevant, but to, to write and to uh, for your own expression, and maybe it might be shared by close family or friends and now or into the future. It might be future generations. I find my children, they don't necessarily want to read about my my word because they're so busy doing their own things. But it might be future generations mm. of my family that say, you know, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather <laughs> did this or did that and here's his experiences. Mm. So that's what I look at. And I love reading. Oh, my, no, I, I probably read two books a week. I'm often through the night reading my books and getting up and, and rather than listening to the terrible news that's often on TV and radio, I think, you know, I, I don't really need to know too much about that. Mm. I'm going to read a book mm. and read about things that enhance my life. Well, look, uh, the book is called The Many Ways of Seeing, uh, written by Nick Leeson with Peter Bishop, who's your writing mentor. Um I'm almost finished the book, started reading it this week. You do write very beautifully and you you write about your life in a way that really will open people's eyes actually to how it is to be blind. And you speak about all of the people that mean so much to you in your life with such great love um, that I really do believe you've got a true gift for writing. 
and I would recommend anybody to read read this book to get an insight what it's like to be a blind person and what it's like to actually overcome many of the obstacles that are put in the way of people with any kind of disability and that sort of grit and spirit that you have Nick is so inspirational uh, and and comes through be beautifully in the book and I can see that you know there would be a lot of writing ahead of you. Thank you Chrissy and and I, I look back and I <clears throat> look back to when I received the Spirit of Adventure Award back in 2002 and what it meant to me, I remember very clearly, it was a morning at the zoo that I received that wonderful medallion and recognition and then quite shock and surprise, I never thought, <laughs> no, an, an ordinary person, I say that literally, an ordinary person could really start to do the things that were important to to me and as an ordinary person I encourage all the millions of other ordinary people to just do what is important to you in your life and your goals will be completely different to mine but equally as important and probably not as stupid and ridiculous as all the adventures mm -hmm. I've done. You probably have far more wise and sane but no matter what they are, no matter how small or large, long as they're important to you, that is the main thing. I think it's a, it's a very, very good message to send out there. And look, I, I think a story for Australian Geographic might be in the pipeline. What do you reckon, Nick? <laughs> what are you doing in the next couple of months? <laughs> Let's chat. Let's chat. <laughs> anyway, look, I would say you may have lost your sight, Nick Gleeson, but you haven't lost your vision. You are a true inspiration and a, and a wonderful role model for anyone in any walk of life, no matter what. And it's been my absolute pleasure to talk to you today and also to have your beautiful dog Unity in the room with us not a peep out of Unity <laughs> definitely got a big future in podcasting <laughs> Very well but it's just been a wonderful experience to meet you and to hear about your adventures and your amazing life thank you so much Nick Gleeson my pleasure that's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Nick Gleeson if you have questions or comments feel free to reach out write us an email podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic and if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia you'll find special offers for our listeners also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from so you never miss an episode thanks for listening until next time Music